everyone, and welcome to the fifth episode in our Funds and Financial Investors Antitrust and Foreign Investment Podcast Series. In this podcast, we'll be zooming into recent developments in Asia. Today, I'm joined by my colleagues, Xi Liao, a partner in our China Antitrust and Foreign Investment Team, and Marcus Pollard, counsel in our Hong Kong Antitrust Foreign Investment Team. As our listeners will most likely know, Asia is a diverse region which has a colorful patchwork of antitrust regimes. This makes M&A investments particularly challenging, as financial sponsors have to keep on top of the quickly shifting sands around the region. Before we dig deeper into the topics today, Marcus and Xi, do you want to give us the headlines? Absolutely, Anna. Uh, I think Xi in a moment will flag the main developments in China, but just to give you the broader Asia context, uh, as a lot of the listeners may be aware now, uh, nearly every country in Asia has some form of merger control. So this is already adding to deal complexity to be able to assess filing obligations across the region. Um, there are two types of jurisdictions in Asia generally. The more established jurisdictions, such as Korea and Japan, are already well tested and regularly will trigger filings for any sizable transaction. Um, these uh, antitrust systems are more predictable in terms of timing and outcome. Uh, but having said that, they are starting to tweak their rules to capture a wider set of deals. And those are particularly uh, relevant to those investments in the tech sector. That compares to say, more uh, regimes such as Thailand and Philippines, uh, who are the new kids on the block. Um, they've actually already shown themselves just in the past couple of years to be a little bit unpredictable uh, when it comes to outcomes of their review process. So it's ever more than important not to let the, these uh, jurisdictions to be blind spots in your deal planning. Thanks, Marcus. That's a helpful overview. Um, Xi, how about China? Where does it fit on the scale? Well, China certainly fits into the first category of, of an established regime becoming more assertive. I can unpack later um, two major developments, but in short, First, the use of variable interest entity, i.e. VIE structures, is well known for financial sponsors doing deals with Chinese targets. Previously, um, the antitrust regulator, Summer, would not review deals involving those structures, as there was a question over their acceptance to the Chinese authorities. But we now know that VIEs are on the regulator's radar, and a number of clients are trolling back to assess the risk from previous deals using um, the VIE structures. And second, as the global headlines are, are clear, Summer has stepped up enforcement in the tax sector in particular, as well as well-known ongoing antitrust investigations into behavioral conduct, uh, such as Alibaba, DD, and others. Last weekend, the regulator has blocked a Tencent-backed merger between two gaming um, companies, Huya and, and Douyu. Thanks, Xi. It sounds like there is a significantly different enforcement environment in China compared to, say, a year ago even. Is there a connection between the VIE structure and the tech sector? And for our PE audience in particular, why is it so important? Well, it's true. Summer's approach to VIEs has changed over time. And what PE houses may have done in the past and what is advisable now is rapidly shifting. VIEs are widely used for offshore holding companies to control Chinese onshore entities through a series of contractual arrangements. 
these VID structures are particularly prevalent among Chinese tech sector as it allows these companies to raise funds overseas on the one hand and carry out businesses in China on the other, especially in the sectors where foreign investment is restricted. The legality of the VIE structure has long been a great area. There was a perception for a long time that deals involving VIE structure could be faced with practical difficulty if they were to be notified to the antitrust authority. But last year, Summer announced that it had reviewed a filing which involved a Chinese JV with a VIE element within its corporate structure. The fact that Summer reviewed and cleared the transaction sent a clear signal to the world that VIE structures would no longer be an obstacle for Summer to review and clear transaction. And she is it right to say that the case you're you're talking about there is is not just an isolated incident, but actually fits into a a much broader policy shift by Summer? Absolutely. Um, two points um, to note. Um, first, Summer adopt the um, antitrust guidelines for platform economy in February this year, which explicitly state that VIE structures are reportable just as other transactions. Secondly, Summer has also started to impose fines on internet companies with a VIE structure for their previous failure to notify transactions. Companies receiving fines, including Chinese tech giants such as Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, ByteDance, um, and the like. And what about for our listeners today? How does this impact them directly? Well, some financial investors, including PE firms, which co-invested in these internet companies, also receive antitrust fines, including SoftBank and Fawson. In the relevant cases, PE funds receive the same maximum statutory fines, i.e. Um, 500,000 uh, Chinese yuan, as the, as the internet companies, which suggests that Summer did not show any leniency towards fund investors, but rather funds are exposed to the same magnitude of failure to notify risk. Thanks, Xi. So I think the message is now very clear. VIEs are no longer off limits. Um, in terms of what we've seen in practice, um, it's that PE funds are taking China filings very seriously when contemplating investments into portfolio companies, particularly in the tech sector. So this means that funds and financial sponsors will either need to structure their deals in a way that could safely avoid triggering a filing obligation, or alternatively, you will have to notify your deal to SEMA if a filing obligation is triggered. And obviously, um, you could not close your deal until you had received that SEMA approval. That, that, absolutely. Yeah. And, and let's remember, SEMA see, uh, tends to take a more expansive approach in interpreting control and decisive influence compared to other jurisdictions. So um, as a result, it's not uncommon for minority shareholdings uh, um, to be considered to amount to control in China when it may not in other jurisdictions such as in the EU. Uh, unfortunately, there's no uh, magic threshold or formula that we can advise clients on and really a case-by-case -case assessment would be needed. So for example, um, Veto rights on a range of matters in the aggregate may tip the scale towards control, even if in isolation one particular veto right may be argued not to be uh, determinative, determinative on its own. Uh, similarly, uh, 
we've talked to many sponsor clients about shifting alliance concept, um, which in the European Union is generally regarded as a no control scenario. But that's not formally recognized by uh, by the Chinese regulator. Uh, rather, SAMA takes that uh, concept with a bit with a grain of salt and, and really questions whether it would uh, be an indicator of joint control rather than no control. So really, there's there's, a, 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 as I said, a more expansive view uh, of control. That's why, Marcus, um, in the recent wave of intensified antitrust enforcement against internet companies in China, what we can see is that some are continue to show that you would not shy away from finding control um, from minority shareholding even below 15%. For example, some have found control to arise in various instances. Um, one example is when Meituan acquired 11.9% and 6.67% um, shareholdings in two target companies respectively. And that's also the case when DD acquire a 11.8% stake in a target company. Um, even more um, recently, in a penalty decision which just came out last week, DD, um, the car hailing companies in China, was found to have acquired control when you set out a JV with a partner where you only held 3.23% um, shares in, in the JV. This case set uh, the record of the lowest shareholding to confer control um, today. And for our financial sponsor clients, you know, they, they typically take minority shareholdings in deal, uh, in deals, and, and one of the reasons they do that is precisely so that they, they can avoid antitrust filings and can close their deals quickly. Um, so how do you foresee these changes impacting how financial sponsors and key investors and funds do deals in the future? Well, nothing magic, um, honestly. Um, I think we just have to be a lot more cautious about analyzing transaction structures um, beforehand. Uh, assumptions and approaches we and our clients may have taken in the past may just not fit um, very well with the new blue book. Okay, that, that's understood. Um, and so, Marcus, how does this contrast with elsewhere in Asia and what we're seeing there? Yeah, so we're not seeing the same targeting and concerted efforts uh, into one particular sector uh, across the region. Um, but what we are, we are seeing increasingly, and particularly when it comes to fund clients, is um, that we are taking a, a more cautious approach to regulatory risk across the region. So, um, and, that, and that's mainly because authorities across Asia are actually taking a more proactive approach. Uh, and I would go as far as to say they're, they're being a lot more aggressive in certain places. Um, to give you a couple of examples there, Korea, for example, the regulator is changing the thresholds to be based on transaction value. Um, there was, a, I think, a concern that some high-value deals in the tech sector were being missed uh, due to the uh, old rules. So now filing can be triggered even if the transaction does not actually meet the, the revenue-based uh, thresholds of the parties. Um, likewise, in, in Thailand, the, uh, the new regulator, the Office of Trade Competition, uh, is, a, is a very young and also very ambitious regulator. Um, they have publicly stated that they are 
closely watching the e-commerce sector uh, and uh, the a number of other sectors that may have been impacted uh, by COVID. Um, so what I would say is, of course, in the past, we've always said that China is a, a key jurisdiction to be on the radar. Uh, but that landscape has quickly changed and is changing and risks are arising uh, from other jurisdictions across the region. Uh, and they will only continue to expand. So, for example, Malaysia is soon to be introducing merger control, uh, and I do think that Hong Kong will soon follow. Thanks, Marcus and Xi. Um, that's a really useful and informative overview, so I think that's a good place for us to be wrapping up. Um, and I think from our conversation, it's very clear that Asia is quickly developing and becoming more sophisticated in terms of regulator behaviour. For our listeners today, the rapid changes to regulatory regimes across the region call for a deeper dive when it comes to your specific transaction. So do bear antitrust in mind, uh, even when making minority investments. And she, Marcus, and the team are always happy to discuss these trends with any questions you have, so do please reach out. This concludes the final episode in our Antitrust and Foreign Investment Funds and Financial Investors podcast mini-series. However, do listen out for further linked latest podcasts. Our financial sponsors team in particular will be covering broader topics relevant to their sector in upcoming episodes. Until then, thanks for listening and goodbye. Thank you.